If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Welcome, everyone, back to your favorite podcast, the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Oh, my goodness, we are so excited to continue our series, um, Parables. And uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am one of your co-hosts. I am the author of the Jesus Un series, including the most recently released Jesus Unforsaken, Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love. And I am joined by my co-hosts, uh, Katie, Derek, and Matt. Say hello. Hello, I'm Katie Valentine, and one of your uh, heretical co-hosts. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, which, fun fact, if you type that into Amazon, it will come up under the adult literature section. Ooh. I know, but it's in fact yeah. not. It's in fact scholarly. So uh, happy to be here. This is going to be fun. To, it is. It is a little ancient porn. Um, I do talk about ancient porn in the book, if that's enticing for anyone. It just means when you, when you Google it, you have to work really hard and actually in order to be able to actually get to it. Hey, I'm excited about talking about our uh, parable of the day. Yep, buddy. And I am Derek Day. I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion, the host of the Forward Podcast, and the blogger of Love Minus Religion on Pathios. And I, too, am excited about this parable, because I like parables. And I am Matthew DiStefano. And uh, I just want to remind everyone that we have a book together, all four of us, plus a bunch of other choir authors. I know a bunch of people are picking it up. There are a lot of great positive reviews. There is one not so positive review. Uh, so thank you to our friend who did that. Um, but it is called, yeah, our pal. Um, it is called Before You Lose Your Mind, Deconstructing Bad Theology in the Church. And it is, get this, this isn't a sales price. I'm not fucking with you. 99 cents on Kindle. And $9.99 in paperback, that is not the sales price. That is the price. So pick it up today. Don't listen to Powell. Uh, you can read his review, but but don't listen to it. <laughs> listen to all the other ones. Pick it up. Judge for yourself. Read the book. And we would be uh, super stoked if you did. Listen, if you get a paperback version, if you touch it, you can actually channel the spirits of your Heretic Happy Hour hosts. Allegedly. Yeah, and I don't talk about <laughs> porn in my chapter, but I do talk about sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of good and, stuff. And, and these results are not guaranteed. Just so That's everyone right. knows. That's exactly. Oh, right. Come on, come on. <laughs> and if you do, by the way, if you do pick up the book, we would love uh, you to rate it and review it and write a review on uh, on Amazon because it actually does help with the the numbers and recommendations and all that stuff. So please do that. Thank you. Cool. And that means, once again, it's time for the Heretic Happy Hour Hotline. So, if you want to get in touch with your favorite heretics, you can do so by dialing 240-343-7379. And we have a voicemail roll that tape. Hi, this is Dave Miller, pastor in Northern California. I've called in once before. It was a great uh, question that, or great answers that you guys gave for with that question. I had another one, rather uh, an insight. I was listening to, I believe the caller was Elena, talking about uh, the difference between loving by imitating Jesus and loving by, imi- by uh, like getting to know yourself. 
and was, was there a conflict in that? And I just wrapped up a sermon, uh, a couple of sermons that were about, you know, Pentecost and Holy Trinity Sunday and those kind of things, talking about spirits and talking about the Holy Spirit as something that um, I had not, not thought about this before, but the Holy Spirit as something that we are as the people left after the resurrection, as Jesus breathes on the disciples as they receive the Holy Spirit after his resurrection, would not we be then the Holy Spirit in person, in body? Would not we be the Holy Spirit, in other words? And that's probably going to be some heresy right there. That's okay. Uh, I hear this is the place to have heresy. But I also pushed back a little bit and thought, well, yeah, but it's not to say that we own the Holy Spirit or that anyone owns the Holy Spirit because Christ breathes it on them, but that the Holy Spirit owns us now. The Holy Spirit owns you, owns me. We are, we are claimed by that Spirit. And so the act of imitating Jesus, the act of listening to yourself and loving yourself, those are both-and kind of situations with the Spirit. I know I'm taking up a lot of time. I did not mean to make this a longer call, but I just wanted to gauge your thoughts on a little heretical sermon moment that I had with our people up here in Northern California that we're thinking about the Trinity in a new way, that the Holy Spirit is something, some entity of God that owns us and claims us. And so now whatever you do to your body, to your to to others, you're doing it to the Holy Spirit. You're doing it of and with yourself. Uh, I just appreciate you guys a lot. Thank you so much. Um, shout out to Katie Valentine and the PLTS and the GTU. Hey, some Holy Hill solidarity. That's what we uh, that's what we call that collection of seminaries and grad school where uh, Dave and I, I think we probably overlapped there, but never actually knew each other. Um, I think that's an interesting question. What do you, what do, what do we think? <laughs> well, uh, I'll just say quickly, um, as he was talking, he was sparking something that I had come up a few years ago in my mind about the idea of like Christians being possessed. Cause he used that thing, that terminology that were owned by the spirit. I'm not really comfortable with that. We're owned by it. Cause it feels kind of weird to me, but it, it, it sparked the idea of like that we are sort of possessed by the Holy spirit. Like, so in other words, we are, there's like sort of this possession, but it's not demonic possession. It's the spirit of God possession. Like the spirit of God is, is in everyone. And so if that is sort of the assumption, it's, it's similar to the idea of saying that we're all the incarnation of Christ and that we're all also filled with the Holy Spirit. And if so, then yes, if that's what you mean by that, I guess I could see that, uh, I could see that way of thinking. Um, so I guess that's all I could say about that. Um, I'm similarly allergic to own, being owned, um, that, that language, and uh, it, it's making it a little hard for me to engage the question, but I'm finding the question really interesting. Being infused with, maybe, I, I can kind of get behind a little bit. Um, yeah. The Yeah, but like being, being owned. But I would say this, I don't know if this is true for all of you, but um, it also, I, I see the radicalness of this, like we're all inhabited by the Spirit of Christ. Um, I don't think this is necessarily dependent on Trinitarian theology and my, my own tradition doesn't require like Trinitarian confession. Um, so I'm not, I don't know that I am a Trinitarian, but this, the spirit of God has been alive and well in the world since before Jesus with Jesus and after Jesus as well. I think where this, that feels a little gritty to me is 
this idea that like that kind of old illustration that that's been used especially for youth groups like if you sin then your your soul has a little bit of a stain on it and you're you're actually like your body is your temple and anything that you do can be harmful like it could go in that direction that's not what i sense dave was said that that you were saying at all but rather this kind of radical idea that the spirit inhabits all of us um so i'm very in a very non-clear kind of way wrestling with the idea without a without a firm conclusion here yeah i I think I the some of the language that was used was was a little off for me in terms of just the way I would see uh speak or or think of things but I I do sense that like for me there's no point in like parsing out what is Matt and what is the Holy Spirit like if if I just see us all as part of God and God as as part of everything like I'm I'm more panentheist than anything so how it works out in terms of, can I say I am the Holy Spirit? No, I don't use that language, but can I splice it up and remove Matt away from the Holy Spirit? I, I don't think in those terms either. So it's kind of like this, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's non-duality. I don't know if it's like just um, incarnation. I, I have no idea, but I'm, I, I like where Dave's going with it. But like you guys, uh, the the owning kind of language is is not really it's not really in my lexicon. Now I'm gonna do something that the rest of y'all might not do because it, I go full apostate because I always go full <laughs> apostate. Uh, Dave, I agree with you about being the Holy Spirit because I'm at, I am God. That's where I am. That now that's not where I land. It just happens to be my point on the journey. But that's it. What I don't agree with is the whole ownership part. Because I am no slave to anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, all I got to say about that. Yeah. But great, great question, yeah. Dave. Great question. I'm enjoying the question. And I, I'm enjoying the kind of think, like thinking of being claimed by, even that has a little bit of that kind of connotation to me. But yeah, yeah. So I think, I think we could all agree, right? That it's an interesting idea. We're kind of going with him. It's really, I think we're all getting kind of hung up on the own by part. Mm-hmm. It does feel like it's it's the same thing when somebody uses that phrase about like how God uses you. Yeah. Like I, no, God doesn't use people. Like I, I like it more the collaboration idea or we're partnering together and, you know, so yeah, the infused, that's a good idea. That's a good word. Now, I, like I got to get, I got to get real nerdy for a second because okay. I want to know what kind of car Dave was driving because he was in a car. But <laughs> he probably, was, he was in an electric car. Oh, and you sure? know how I'm almost certain of it. Either that or he's driving a very expensive luxury car. Why? Because I could hear road noise and wind noise, but no engine or gear noise. Wow. I was gonna say I thought it was a nineteen seventy five Pinto. Nope. Nope. Finally he's, tuned he's in a Tesla ear. or something. Yeah. Yes. But he's, he, he is making that pastor money, so he might be in a Tesla. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Big money. Yeah. I was going to say, also, like, just kudos to the group of people, to the congregation that were talking about this, that were willing to take this idea on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's really cool. I, uh, nice. Shout out to the congregation uh, or yeah. whoever, whatever the group of people was that was talking about this. That's awesome. Well, what do y'all think? Is it time to go to our Heretic of the Week and get this fabulous, fabulous knowledge drop? It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, I'm Gabe, and some people definitely think I'm a heretic. Hi, Hi Gabe. Gabe. 
<laughs> well, welcome, Gabe. I think everyone, maybe minus one guest, has said that. So you are in good company. First thing we like to ask our fellow heretics is why why would people consider you a heretic? Well, I think there's a whole host of reasons, but we only have time for a few. So um, I'll just stick with the main one, I think. Um, and that is that I do not believe the Bible is the word of God. Oh, that's pretty tame. Come on. <laughs> none, of tame. Us, none of us here do. Yeah, I, 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 I know. But it's not tame if you're in a fundamentalist coffee shop, which I am right now. So, oh well, if true. Anyone, so, so, so if, speak, if anyone heard speak that, quiet, speak quietly and right into the microphone, yeah, yeah. please. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, how how has that um, how has that gotten you into trouble, and and why don't you think that? Why what led you to to believe that, or you know, why have you come to that conclusion? Yeah, well, uh, my journey began. Um, so, I was just give you a brief brief synopsis. Uh, I, I'm originally from Washington State, and uh, my grandparents were Assembly of God missionaries, so that was the first part of my childhood. I ended up becoming Southern Baptist, which I know you also come from that background, Keith, and mm-hmm. went to a Southern Baptist college. So I, I definitely grew up with the view that the Bible was the inerrant Word of God. But uh, into college, um, I remember I was an anthropology major and a church planting major, and through, you know, a college education, I ended up just uh, thinking through some things, and and I started to uh, read the Bible in a new light. I remember reading uh, Acts seventeen, I think it's chapter verse Acts seventeen verse eleven, where it talks about uh, Paul was speaking the word of God, and the Berarians accepted it more readily than the Thessalonians, and then they compared it to the scriptures. So I remember reading that and realizing that Luke or whoever wrote Acts was not. Uh, using those two words synonymously, I kept reading the New Testament and started to read the Church Fathers, and um, eventually came to the uh, conclusion that that was, um, um, if I may say, was a heretical viewpoint to suggest mm-hmm. that the Bible is the Word of God. Some of the ways it got me in trouble, I remember when I was, I think this was after I graduated college, after I got kicked out of a Southern Baptist church in Seattle, I moved back to uh, Oklahoma where I went to college because my at the time, fiance was there, and um, there was a particular student there who did not like me and was spreading the rumor that I was a Marcionite, um, which yeah, I, yeah. I'm not. I don't believe in Martians or any sort of alien. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, know what he's <laughs> I totally stole that from Peter Enns. But um, and so yeah, so that kind of got me in trouble. I remember a couple of students came up to one of our professors and. Like, hey, did you hear, see this article that this guy wrote? Uh, he doesn't believe the Bible's the word of God. And I remember actually talking to that professor and he just kind of shook his head. It was like, yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, that whole Martianite thing, man, that just seems to be the automatic. It's either that or, or you're a Gnostic. Those are the two automatic, you know, oh, you don't believe what I believe. You're, you're a Gnostic or you're a Martianite. Um, yeah. It just seems kind of silly. Because, you know, to be a Martianite, you would have to believe that the Old Testament was written by Satan or something, right? Or some lesser God. And there's uh, only there's only two, nest, ten New Testament scriptures that, um, ten, ten New Testament books that are canon, I think, if I remember correctly. Or is yeah, that origin? He, he rejected, um, I think he rejected Matthew and Mark. Matthew seemed too Jewish to him. I think he mm-hmm. had an edited version of Luke and then he had some of Paul's letters and, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but you know what? If um, if it wasn't for Martian, we probably the whole concept of canon. I mean, as far as we know, he's the first guy to kind of come up with sort of a a list, right? Yeah, this yeah. was the official list. These books are good. These books are acceptable, and these others are not. So you know, even if you don't agree with his list, it, he kind of set that in motion. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I mean, maybe Martian's bad mostly because of that. <laughs> well, well, well. To be fair, the there is no such thing as a canon when it comes to the yeah. Bible. Yeah. So it wasn't until 367 that we get the first, you know, list of our 27 books, no more, no less, by uh, Athanasius, who was a bishop of Alexandria. And it's not until 397 that that list is picked up by a local council in North Africa and said, hey, let's make these our, our, our only New Testament scriptures. And that wasn't an ecumenical council, so it was never accepted. And then, you know, today we Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestants all have different canons. So there's never been a council, to my knowledge, that has said, hey, these are the uh, the books that are well, in our canon. And, and, and goodness gracious, like Luther didn't want to keep certain books in there. And he's like, you know, the darling of Protestantism. And so I, I think that the takeaway is people don't know what they're talking about, like your professor said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I see that's that's kind of like when people and I've heard Christians who do believe that the Bible is the word of God and it's inerrant and infallible and there are no contradictions, there's no mistakes and all that. And then, then they'll say things like, you know, God God protected his canon, he he made sure that all those books, you know, ended up in the right in, in all gathered together and all that. And I'm like when they, so when they say things like that, I'm like that God protected the canon, you know, and made made sure it came together. It's which one? Because there's like, what, five or six different ones, as you mentioned. There's several different canons depending on sort of which stream you're in. There, there isn't, so there isn't one. That's the point, right? That the point is there, even with these attempts to create some sort of official Christian collection, you know, you still have different Christians and Christian streams saying, well, no, we accept these and we, and we, you know, we, we put these in and, and we reject these other ones. Yeah, and it wasn't, and John Bear, an Eastern Orthodox priest and scholar, has pointed out that uh, another scholar, I, I can't remember the name of the person, but it wasn't until the 17th or 16th century that someone applied the term canon to the Bible. Before then, it was applied to the rule of faith. Uh, yeah. So even, so even that's not <laughs> historically plausible. Yeah. So, uh, Gabe, I'm curious. So, um, you kind of made that switch, right? You say, okay, the Word of God is not the Bible. So, what is the Word of God? What would you say the Word of God is? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you've ever heard that song by Trip Lee, if you were ever into Christian rap, I love that line. I hate the song in general, but I really love that line. Um, he's like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I, I can't rap. So, but that's you, but you're a hip hop artist, right, Matthew? So you could probably do that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that. Um, I never got into Christian anything, so I've heard the name Triply, but I, I have outside of him and like Lecrae, I don't know any Christian hip hop. Yeah, but you you could probably do the Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm sure I yeah, can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're gonna make you do that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. Um, uh, I, I really like what Brad Jersak says about this. He says, I, I believe in the inerrant and fallible word of God. And when he was 18, he grew a beard. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I remember um, I that, that same scholar, John Baer, um, I had an email 
uh, I don't know if that's confidential, but I don't think it is. I had an email exchange with him and I asked him a question um, be- because I partially because I wanted affirmation for myself. I said, in the New Testament and in the patristic period, do any of them use the title word of God to describe uh, to describe the Bible? And he says, um, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he basically said only very, 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 very rarely. It, mm-hmm. The title, the word of God is exclusively used of Christ and it, it, the scriptures witness to him. And yeah. so, you know, reading the, the church fathers, um, I, I did uh, my thesis that I just turned in uh, a few days ago on origin, the church father and reading his, his text. When he says the word of God, it is very clear that um, that he is speaking exclusively about Jesus. When you read uh, Irenaeus, it's the same thing. When you read Augustine, it's the same thing. When you read all these different church fathers, to um, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, and um, uh, you know, there's a hundred we could keep going. Hippocles of Rome, all of them. When they talk about Jesus, they talk about Jesus as the Word of God. And when they talk about scriptures, it's never as the Word of God. So, mm-hmm. so. Um- I'm just going to play devil's advocate here and ask you a question um, that, that that I've I've gotten often on this same conversation. Is sort of like, well, so what difference does it make? I mean, what's the big deal? Why do we make a big deal about this, whether it's the Bible or the Word of God? Uh, because if it is the Word of God, if the Bible is the Word of God, let me let me say it this way: whatever the Word of God is. Because a person's word can never be separated from the person who spoke it, whatever we apply the title word of God has to ontologically be God. So if we're saying the Bible is the word of God, then we're saying that the Bible is God. And that kind of is the way. So, yeah, I I agree. And I think that the Christians who do uh, equate the Bible with the Word of God, absolutely connect those dots in their mind. And you can tell by the way they talk about the Bible. Like, the Bible gets deified. The Bible gets put in this place where, um, I think that's probably how I first noticed it, actually. I would just see Christians, you know, writing things or the way they would speak about and they would use this phrase, the Word of God. And, and when they did, that, when they did, it was obvious they meant the Bible. Um, but they would make claims about the Bible or the Word of God, but they mean the Bible. <laughs> they mean the book that we wrote. Uh, and they would equate, they would give it the same sort of stature and, and ability that they, that should be applied to Jesus, right? Just things like the Bible will change your life. The Bible, you know, will do all the, like things that would be true and accurate if you put Jesus in there. Yeah. But, but they've switched it now and it's the Bible all of a sudden. And it becomes, yeah, becomes a problem. The first part of my thesis was actually about the fundamentalist perspective on on the Bible. And so I went through lots and lots of documents written by fundamentalists within the last hundred years um, describing the Bible. And John MacArthur, um, for instance, he and he's not the first one to say this, and he's not the only one. There's lots of fundamentalists that say something essentially of this. But he said in his book that the scriptures and when in the scripture, when it talks about scripture, it uses that synonymously with God. Yeah. So it's, it's very explicit. Um, and I don't know, it boggles my mind of it, how 
um, people don't make that connection. So, so you, you've mentioned your thesis, but I know you have a book coming out. Is this stuff that you get into in your book? Um, and tell, tell our, tell our listeners, tell myself, cause I, forgive me, I don't, I don't know what your book's about. So is this, um, is this a part of your book? Do you talk about how, how you view the Bible or is it more about your story about wrestling with the Bible or, or what's going on there? Yeah. So, um, luckily my thesis and, and parts of my book overlapped. So I've been getting to think about this stuff a lot in the last year or two. Um, but my, my book is essentially, um, I think you guys have had Thomas J. Ord on the podcast. It's funny that I yeah. use the word essentially because it is essentially a doctrine of inspiration built off of Tom Ord's, um, a theology of essential kenosis or God can't theology. And yeah. so I start off the book by uh, chapter one is uh, addressing six problems within popular notions of inspiration. So I talk about inerrancy as a problem. I talk about the problem of evil um, as a problem for popular notions of inspiration, um, the generality of inspiration and how it was used in the early church, the word of God. Um, that's a big one. And I have lists of, uh, of church fathers that I'm quoting uh, to show that when they speak of the word of God, they speak of, of Christ. And, um, and then so through, through, through the rest of the book, I end up introducing essential kenosis or uh, more popularly known as God can't theology, explaining kind of what that is. And, um, and then I connect that and, and essentially argue that the implications of that are, and I'm giving a brief, really brief overview, but the, uh, the uh, implications of that, if God is uncontrolled in love and cannot control creatures, then what that means for inspiration is that you have a divine revelation, uh, which is Christ, and that d- the scriptures are a human response, a free human response to that divine revelation. And so what's produced as scripture um, is, is not, it's a shadow of the divine. It's not divine revelation in and of itself. And so that's kind of, um, I get a lot more into the book um, and, and kind of go from there. But that's a, a really basic overview of what the book is about. Well, cool. What um, what is the title of the book, and when can folks expect it? And uh, in the meantime, maybe get a hold of you. You mentioned a blog, so plug away, my friend. Yeah, so uh, I love a shameless plug. So you can check me out at. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. It's Gabriel Gordon. I'm my profile pic is the two beautiful men in suits. And you can also find me on the misfitstheology.com. Uh, That's our an ecumenical blog I run. Uh, it's a blog dedicated to seeking unity in the church. So we have fundamentalists on there. We have broader evangelicals. We have mainline progressive Protestants, uh, Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics. And so you can find me there. Um, you can also, if you really want to get a hold of me, you can email me. Um, I don't know what I think about giving out my email, but I'm going to do it this one time. Um, <clears throat> it's... Uh, I'm going to give you my older email that I don't check very much, but Samuel Walters 405 at gmail.com. That was an alias that I used to blog under in college. So that's why it's Samuel Walters 405 at gmail.com. But the name of the book is God Speaks. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's the name of the book. It's coming out. It's supposed to come out June 1st. So hopefully this, uh, I think this episode might come out around then um who knows who knows only god yeah. knows or yeah. if you're no well, or yeah. if you're an open theist you know god, god doesn't, doesn't know. know and that might be you know with the heretic happy hour open theism might be true because i don't even think god knows what the hell's going <laughs> yeah. on there. well you might be an open theist you know what's that redneck you might be a redneck if, um yeah. and uh, it'll be with uh, choir publishing so 
Oh, oh yeah. And you know, Gabe, I'm so glad you're in the choir family. Um, and we didn't talk about this at the beginning or anything, but um, I've known you for a little while. I've been on, I've been a guest on your podcast a couple of times. We've had several conversations and man, I've always just been very blessed to talk to you. Um, in fact, every time I talk to you, I think I should talk to this guy more often. I really, it's very inspiring. It kind of gets me thinking. Um, I really, really love it. Love talking to you. Looking forward to the book. And um, yeah, man, thank you so much for your time. And I hope the book goes very, very well. Yeah, well, I'm honored. And I will say um, there, there are things in the book that I definitely picked up from reading your book. So um, so it's it's the feeling it's mutual. So, All right, let's let's end this bromance. All right, <laughs> All right you two. Well, th- thanks for coming on. It's, it's been a it's been a blast. Thanks, thanks Matthew. I, I love being the heretic of the week. Yes. Who doesn't? Wow. Thank you, Gabe. Uh, I love Gabriel Gordon. Um, I, I really I had a chance to talk to him a couple of times in the past. He's just a really inspiring guy. And I, I'm, I'm glad that there are younger people like Gabe out there that are as smart as he is and as just interesting as he is, um, it gives me hope for the future. I, I wish, I hope there's a whole lot more people just like uh, Gabriel out there. Uh, there's got to be one or two. At least a couple. Well, yeah. At least a couple. I just don't want this to turn into like an old, you know, I'm an old man and you know that. But it's hey, like, hey, I, it, hey, 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 hey. We even um, got a sound bite for you, dude. Yeah, I know that. But, <laughs> you're, you're, you're younger than me. But, you know, like I, uh, it's weird because like I, I hear sometimes people talking about sort of the deconstruction movement and we'll talk about how it's like this younger generation. And honestly, I'm looking for the more of the younger generation because actually most of what I see is guys my age and older who are deconstructing. And I know there are younger people also, but I I actually feel like it probably isn't as many young people because I think a lot of young people are kind of allergic to some of the stuff that older people kind of grew up with. Like younger people are kind of like, no, I don't, God's not a monster and God doesn't burn people. And you know, they're, they're much more, they're much more open-minded already. And so anyway, I'm just excited when I see younger people kind of championing some ideas the way Gabriel and someone like Matthew Corbin's another one. Um, really when I see those guys and hear those guys talking, I get really excited for the future. Yeah. And I get really excited for this parable. We uh, we ran out of parables to pick, so we 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 kind of agreed that there are a couple more that we had to talk about. This is a collaborative. This is a collaborative effort. Yes. So it's from uh, it's from Matthew twenty two. So kiddos, if you have your Bibles, open them up. Turn yes. Uh, turn to Matthew's the first gospel in the New Testament. That's this right. is my Just Bible. Just in case you need to know, <laughs> I am what it says that I am. I could do what it says that I could do, and today I will be taught the uncontested, indisputable, and unrefutable word of God. Hey, see, so did you guys ever? When you guys were kids, did you ever have to learn a little song to remember the order of the books of the Bible? No. A true story. Vacation Bible School. Yeah, yes. yeah, but yeah. I could only go to the first like three days, and so I missed the whole New Testament. Oh. But I can still sing the song up through like Ruth. Now, listen, I I remember the song, and honestly, to this day, when I'm looking for something, I I start singing the song in my head, like to figure out what goes where, you know. And so, yeah, there's a song for the Old Testament, and there's one for the New Testament, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Epistle to the Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Yeah, yeah, I, I just memorized that whole song, and that's how I find things in the Bible. So there you go. I use Google. You can also use the index. Oh, it works. Is there an index? I never, I never looked that up. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. I that use weed. Or table of contents. There's a table of contents. Oh, that just sounds too hard, though. The song is just much easier.
Yes, memorizing that cornball song is much easier. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. We're in Matthew 22, everyone. Matthew 22. So what is this parable? Uh, And actually, uh, we we picked this one, I think, because um, was it you, Matt? I think you had mentioned there was like a really interesting take on this parable that I had never heard before. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we got to do this. Uh, well, so, yeah, this is this is the parable about uh, it's the wedding banquet. People who argue, it's one of those ones where who people argue for hell. They they go to this because, um, let's see, the guy the guy who shows up to the wedding doesn't have the wedding clothes, so eventually he gets kicked out into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, people typically Christians will look at this as as kind of a it's a parable. They they find this one-to-one correspondence between the king and God. And right. God in this parable is kind of an asshole, a bit of a tyrant. But this interesting, there's a there's an essay I came across from Marty Aiken. He's a Girardian scholar. And he has a different take where the king is, it's not seen as God. It's seen as Herod or a king like Herod. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the, um, you know, the, the the kings in the parables in Matthew's gospel are not viewed very favorably. Right. Um, so it kind of fits within that that understanding of of uh, of kings that are not viewed favor favorably. And and the the twist on this thing is that Jesus is the one who's kicked out into the outer darkness, and and it kind of has the same motif as the the suffering servant from from Second Isaiah. Um, you know, we we uh, we have this picture of of someone who is uh, like grotesque beyond imagination, right? And and he's rejected. And the Calvinists read penal substitution back into Isaiah 52 and 53, and it, it pleased God to punish him and all this kind of stuff. Right. So we have this figure who's who's thrown out into the outer darkness. And, and I, uh, Marty Aiken's interpretation is that that's a picture of Jesus. So we're not seeing like the traditional quote unquote way of God throwing people out of the wedding banquet um, and that means people go to hell. It's really the king, either Herod or someone like Herod, throwing Jesus out of um, of the wedding banquet. So it's kind of this flip of, of an interpretive method. And so I thought that was so interesting that maybe we should talk about it. Yeah. So and, and you know, what? going back to look at the parable with that new lens of that, hey, maybe that is what's happening. Like I notice um, at the beginning of the parable. Jesus starts the parable by saying the kingdom of the heavens has been likened to a man, a king. So he starts off by emphasizing that this is about a man and then says it's a king, which in, which you could take to mean he's trying to say the king isn't God. The king is a man um, who has this wedding celebration. And then, as you as you pointed out, um, all these people are invited to the banquet and then the king shows up, but he notices uh, there's a man sitting there. Uh, at the table who is not dressed in the proper wedding garments. And he says, how did you enter without a wedding garment? And then it says, the man was speechless, right? And I think this is one of the other thing arguments too, right? The fact that Jesus says nothing, the fact that Jesus was speechless, kind of goes back again to this Isaiah passage of how, you know, like a sheep before his shearers is dumb, or yeah. you know, how the gospel, the other, other gospels emphasize how Jesus at his trial spoke, didn't respond. He said nothing. Right. And, and right. how, so there, there's a correlation right there to that man being kicked out as being Jesus also. 
and I really, and also the fact that he's cast out, right? And so Jesus was crucified outside the city, right? He wasn't crucified inside the city. He was outside the city. So there, there are several parallels. I mean, I think there's actually, it's really fascinating to me. Like if, if that is what it's about, it actually kind of fits and it really does turn the whole thing on its head in a very interesting way. I just, I love that perspective. One of the things that's always troubled me about this passage is that the king sends out the invitations and everybody shows up and this guy shows up. Now, could it be that he didn't have a wedding garment? Could it be that, you know, that he was poor, that he was disenfranchised, whatever? Could it be? And, and so why then would he be cast out even though he did his best to be there? Yeah. That's one thing that always troubled me about this one. Yeah, and I agree with you. I see. I, I think again, this is one of the reasons why this perspective is so fascinating. Because to be honest, it is a tr- kind of troubling if you read it as okay, Jesus saying this is what God the Father is like. He's he's a he's a king who is going to cast somebody out who's poor, who can't afford the right wedding garment, who doesn't play by the rules, who's looking for an excuse to disqualify you and throw you out, and he'll bind you and torture you and throw you out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it just feels so inconsistent with everything else Jesus says about who the Father is and what God is like, that it's yep. very troubling. And so so, so I really, I kind of, I'm, I'm warming up to this idea of like, yeah, maybe this is not at all. Jesus is not talking about what God is like. He is, maybe he is trying to talk about how Jesus is the one person who doesn't conform to what the king, and that would be Herod or even Caesar or you know Pilate or someone like that, mm-hmm. he doesn't conform, he doesn't play by the rules, and because of that, he's cast outside the city and he's tortured and all this stuff. I, I kind of like that. I think um, I could live with that. Yep. So one of the things we've been dancing around, I think, the whole parable series is what is a parable? Like, what is it? Um, and I've been, um, maybe not strongly, but... Um, like standing my stand, standing uh, firmly in the ground here, that parables are not allegories, um, and that like way back, especially like the prodigal son, you know, my most sort of uh, vicious, my my most viciously disliked parable <laughs> there. Um, but like, I don't like seeing God as the father in that particular parable. I don't like seeing God as the king in this one. So yeah, it's about something else. Um, then, so I, if we can get sort of away from that idea that a parable is an allegory, um, a direct allegory, like where everyone stands one for one, I think I think that opens up to the richness. So Matt, I really appreciate this perspective um, as well. And I um, I have the best story ever from when this parable came up and I was doing a children's moment a few years ago, like the children's sermon. So I was focusing on, we invite all of our, we, we invite everyone to come, everyone is welcome, you know, that part of the of the parable. They go out into the town. So I sent that. I was like, I, every child was invited to go to the congregation and bring someone up um, as if to the party. And of course, you know, every church has the kid. And so the kid got really excited about this. And he went in front of the whole congregation. He was like, y'all, come on. It's a party. It's a party. Come to the wedding. And he brought like 30 people up to the front of the church, including all these visitors. But it was just this (laughs) moment of pure joy. I mean, he was like seven or eight. He just got totally into the idea that like everyone can be welcome at the wedding banquet, um, that that everyone's invited. And I mean, we just could have gone home for the day. 
after that. <laughs> like it, like it so completely illustrated um, the welcome nature of God. Of course, this parable has a lot more that's complex in it mm-hmm. uh, as well. But I wanted to shout out. I'm not going to obviously mention him by name, but um, uh, just like the best, one of the best church moments ever that I had. Um, <laughs> but you know, part this this parable as well. Something we haven't talked about is that there's a lot of violence. Not only this eschatological violence at the end, but like there's people that get murdered. There's um, enslaved people mm-hmm. in this parable too. So there's all these assumptions about kind of um, social class in this parable that we often gloss over in favor of this like you know argument about heaven and hell. Uh, that I find uh, it it uh, it shakes me. I don't like this part of the parables. We often see this kind of un- background violence in them and. Uh, Sometimes I have trouble looking past it to the other points of the parable. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things that um, I, I want to kind of dive into something in, on a tangent here, a little bit of etymology, parable, and parabolic, like hyper, uh, hyperbole and hyperbolic. And so when I think of um, a parable, I'm thinking of like a parabola sort of like, you know, a uh, geometric shape. And it's sort of like the long way around to a point. And and so so I'm I'm just I'm just kind of throwing that out there because I, I think that, you know, to Katie's point, not allegorical at all. It's just a long or a um a more the the long way around explaining something. And that so so when I think of parables, that's what I think of. Sorry, call me weird. I don't care. Yeah. No, I like it. What is this one explaining to you, Derek? Well, I think that, again, I like Matt's explanation that this can't be God, right? That it has to to be a man. And I think that this whole explanation is a long way or long-tailed way of saying that, hey, this is me. In this context, that Jesus is saying he's using himself as the subject of this. He's the guy that doesn't show up in the right garment. He's the guy that gets cast out. And he's the guy that's out there with the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of times in these parables, it's like, to what should we compare the, uh, the kingdom to? Right. And we think there's a one-to-one correspondence. Well, this is like yeah. that. But really, I think often we need to say as much of this is also what it's not like. Mm-hmm. It's not like we're saying, oh, this points to that. It's like, we need to think broader. We need to, we need to think like, like we've said many times, Katie's harped on this throughout the series. Like this is to shock us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it doesn't like, like just personally, if you're saying, oh, God's like this, he's, he's, he's the king. And that's not a shocking statement. Right. I've heard it a thousand times. When you say, oh, no, it's actually like Jesus is the one who he didn't have the right clothes on. Maybe he's yeah. too poor. He gets thrown out to hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus. And you're like, oh, damn, that shocks me. That impacts me. That's that's like, wow, we, we really need to rethink these things, because I think on a lot of these parables, he is taking the long way home. Derek, yep. he, yeah. he, he is. I mean, that because. There's just so much more depth of meaning when, when he does that rather than say, I mean, he could just simply say, oh, God's like this guy. He's going to be an asshole. He's going to, and that's it. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not what he's saying. Yep. Yeah. That's not what he's saying. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's what's so fascinating about this parable series we've been doing. And I really have one of the reasons I've loved it so much, uh, this series, is that it's given us an opportunity to look at some parables. Some of them are parables that we've, you know, I think the average Christian would think, I know this one. I know what this is about. You, I, there's nothing here. There's nothing new here to find. And the fact that we've been able to look at some of these, some very well-known parables and, and notice things and point out things that Frankly, some things I never noticed before that I'm like, this is really awesome. And, and I think, again, this is the beauty of the parables that there are layers to them. There is meaning within them that isn't sometimes so obvious. There are other ways to look at it and frame it. And that's what I really appreciated about this series we've done is we've been able to kind of come at these parables from really different directions that I never would have thought of otherwise. And, and hopefully that gives us permission um, for all the parables we haven't covered yet, because there's lots of parables, you know, next time you're reading a parable, try to flip it around. Try to look at it from a different per- perspective. Try to ask yourself, you know, what's really going on here? And is that what's ha- is this what it's saying? Or could it be saying something else? Is there, am I missing something here? Because the chances are you probably are not seeing something. There is probably something there that isn't quite so on the surface. So. I wonder if I can if I could share something else real quick. I, I had to do some graphic art stuff um, for uh, a project that I'm working on. And this PNG file, graphics file, it, it was like when I was trying to upload it, it wouldn't allow me to upload it, even though I, I sized it right and it, everything was good. But what I discovered is that this thing had something called an alpha channel enabled. A really obscure thing, and I had to look it up, you know. But the thing is, is that not every, like, say, media syndication service accepts PNGs with alpha channels. And the alpha channel is sort of like a hidden meta layer. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that's, that, that there is some other information that can be stored in there that cannot be seen that's layered over the, or, or under the actual graphic itself. And yeah. so when, when we look at the parables, we have to first, I, I, you know, we have to put, peel back the layers that we do understand. But I think that there is a calling out to us to try to find the alpha channel in the parable like to find, to find this hidden, this hidden layer and, and, and expose it and determine whether or not that's something we need to process or not. Yeah. I like that. That's a great analogy for those of you tech heads out there who understand what those layers are. I think I know what that is. I think there's a way of sort of, uh, there used to be anyway, a way of sort of like cheating the mm-hmm. SE, the Google SEO. Yep. Like, so if you're doing SEO for search terms that you could embed search terms in the image. In, exactly. Without putting those words on your page. And yep. I think that's why some servers reject that, that, that layer because it is a way of cheating the SEO. Yep. Right. Um, yeah. Really interesting. Hey, man, I see you. I speak you, man. I, <laughs> namaste. <laughs> the namaste. tech geek in me sees the tech geek in you, right? <laughs> <laughs> as I'm as I'm kind of like looking over this parable, I can't, there's so many layers to this. There's so many like little nuances in this parable. But, you know, we talked about, um, which parable was it? The rich man and Lazarus, I think, how it was kind of set, like the hell happened to be the setting mm-hmm. for this one. But this but one is like a twisted fairy tale. Like yeah. once upon a go in a kingdom far away. Yeah, there was this corrupt king. And um, Keith, I'm so glad you brought up in your translation that it says the man, because I, I looked that up, but the, it's not a nair um, for the word for a male. It's anthropos. 
the word for a human being. Mm. There you go. So okay. Wow. Like, that so the king, gets pretty specific. Yeah. So the king is this an anthropos and, wow. and a basileos. He's a the yeah. human being who is the king. And so um, that would work fit very neatly if we were sort of like um, uh, equating the king with Jesus. Yeah. Like Jesus as the son of the son of the human being, but it's it makes it even a little more mysterious. I think when the king, this king is, I don't know that the king is corrupt. Um, I don't know what do you all think is the king corrupt? But the king is matching violence to violence. Yep. You know, in this parable, and then but making this radical statement of inclusion at the same time. No, I, I agree, and I think the um, this is again why it's so problematic. Like it starts to say then, because again, people want it to be. Uh, because people have a certain theology, right? Penal substitution. You you have to have a God who's angry and wrathful. Therefore, this parable really appears, you know, is you want to be able to say if that's your position. See, God is the king here, and God is the one whose honor is insulted. And how dare you come and insult the honor of the holy king? And therefore, you deserve to be beaten and bound and cast into, you know, eternal flames of darkness. So, so that little point, and by the way, uh, the reason I said man is because I read it from the David Bentley Hart yeah, translation yeah. of the New Testament, and he renders that that way. He says, a man, comma, a king. So, it, like, and I thank you for also pulling out the idea that it isn't just a a particular man, it's humanity, right? It's, it's a mm. humankind yeah, is a represented in this type. Yeah. 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 And I, I think, man, that sort of undoes that whole way of looking at it. Like, how can you then say, Oh, this parable is therefore the king is God. If he, if he's making a huge point about the fact that it really is not God, it's a man. Well, what if it's not a man? If we take Katie's example, Anthropos, now we're talking about humanity. Yeah. I mean, we're yeah. talking about a, a much broader contra- uh, construct. Yes. Well, and we and we probably are, even if it's specific. Even if even if Jesus had one man in mind, I think the broader point would be like, well, this is kind of how all of them are. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, it might be one dude in mind, but really, it's kind of <laughs> like all that way. Yeah, all uh, you motherfuckers. Human <laughs> kings it, corrupt. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's it's kind of like saying, yeah. I mean, on a spectrum, our presidents are. Uh, they're on a spectrum, but and some are worse than the, the others. Some are uh, number, really worse than others. Number yes. forty-five. I'm, I'm talking <laughs> to you, um, but but you can kind of say, well, you know, the whole system's fucked, right? Yeah. And, and and they all kind of play that role. You know, I I just I just don't like this. Is what really bugs me about Christianity and why I, I have such a hard time with it is that the the the, the picture of God we paint with our interpretations. Yeah. If I just read this, I'm like. I don't need that God. He's got slaves. We've got exactly. slaves. Yeah. He's got retribution. We've got retribution. He comes up. It's almost like it's almost like it's the mafia. You yeah. know, he's got he's got the guy there. He's in the wrong robes, and he's like, "Friend, how did you get in here?" No one, no one who is about to do some shit to someone says, "Hey, friend." No. Hey, hey, buddy. But what, <laughs> it's like the bouncer. Hey, buddy, what are you doing here? Right. You know, and it's like, he, and then he throws him out. I mean, so this, so God's really just like heaven's bouncer. Yeah, and if you and if you don't got the right clothes on, he didn't even do anything wrong. Yeah. He just show, he just showed up right in the you know. So it's like right, hey, hey guy, what are you doing back here, huh? All right. I can do is imagine Marlon Brando. Like, how dare you show up to my daughter's wedding right. without a right clothes on? Right. <laughs> you know, you know, this is this guy here. This king reminds me of Don Chichi in Godfather Part Two. Right? The guy who Don Corleone actually bumps off, you know, yep. to become the Don. 
Don Chichi was, a, you know, just a dirty son of a bitch like this. And that's what this guy is. Yes. Right. Let me update to Tony Soprano for a yeah. 90s watchers. Yeah, right. I picture like Robert De Niro in Casino or one of those, like, you know, one of those, um, one of those mafia movies, like you said, like, it's like, hey, hey, buddy, come here, come here. Yeah, yeah. Do, would I look like a clown to you? Uh, you know, you disrespect me. You know, it's like, uh, it's that whole attitude. And it's like um, a God, the God that Jesus reveals to us, and what would make more sense would be for if it really was supposed to be God, that God would be merciful. God would say, friend, mm-hmm. um, maybe you want to go home and find something appropriate to wear and then you can come back, right? If that was something that was really important. But it's there's no mercy. There's no opportunity. There's not even a, hey, let's sit down. Let me talk to you a little bit. I mean, what's going on? Are you okay? Get do you, do you need some help? Can I help you with something? You know, is that, are you poor? Are you suffering? Is this why you can't afford? No. It's like, uh, you, buddy. Hey, I'm talking to you. Come here. Yeah, you. Yeah, come here, guys. Grab him, beat him up, you know, th- and torture him. And let's kill him. Like, what? What the hell? <laughs> but you know what? Honestly, uh, I, except for this idea, Matt, I think I would have just read this parable as like, I don't really know what that means. It's, I don't like what I think it implies. But, you know, like no one's ever given me any other way of thinking about it before. So I really, really appreciate this. Yeah, this is really a breath of fresh air. I mean, well, this, really. This would have been one where the, we'd have to give the conservatives a, a, a check because they always say, oh, you don't like those verses. You're just going to cross them out. On this one, I'd have been like, yep. yep. <laughs> this is where I'm like, yep, don't like that one. <laughs> well, if we if we may all place ourselves in the, uh, in the metaphorical place of Jesus in the parable, too, I'm like, I have people consign me to not not literally, but, um, you know tell me I'm being thrown into outer darkness and stuff all the time, right? So this is also part of what it means to be a Jesus follower is to have to be willing to be the one who's ousted. Yes. Right, who is like, we have to be willing to, or sorry, I'm speaking for me, but like I have to be willing to be the one who is ousted sometimes and um, who's, you know, I I can kind of see myself in many different roles within the parable uh, in my own journey as well. And so yeah. I can also see this being um, really helpful for early Christians who, you know, the gospel of Matthew was um, is really struggling with the early, are we Jewish? Are we, are we some, some sect of Judaism? What are we? So with the sectarianism. So I can also see this being really, really helpful for those early followers, like who don't know exactly what they are. They're having trouble labeling themselves. They're having trouble being identified within the early collective of Judaism and Gentiles, et cetera. So uh-huh. everyone's kind of throwing each other into outer darkness yeah. as well. So I can also see this being like, um, we need a different system. Yeah. And, and I like also the idea, like Derek, what you were talking about, about, you know, parables and the, and the word of the idea of parabolic, you know, a, a parabolic is also a kind of a mirror, right? Yeah. It's a curved mirror that, that reflects back and focuses light in a, yeah, actually a parabolic mirror is intended in a lot of ways to focus light in a, to create intense heat. Right. Um, and so in a way, this, if you think of a parable as a mirror, isn't that exactly what it does? If you see God, for example, mm. as this sort of penal substitutionary, violent, wrathful God, then when you read this parable, how will you see, how will you interpret it? Oh, God must be the angry God. But if you see God in a different way and you see God as this loving, merciful, kind, forgiving father that Jesus reveals, then when you read it, What's reflected back is, oh, well, then it must be Jesus who's the guy who's cast out. And the king has to be the one that killed him or crucified him, right? That 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 fits, you know. So in other words, like the, par- the parables have a way 
of of kind of reflecting back something, right? Like maybe your first pa- passing, your first reading, your like sort of um, initial reflexive reading of it is what you should is what you should question. <laughs> then we should go, well, okay, this, this is how it seems to me, but is that right? And why do I see it that way? So that's very interesting. I, I like that uh, that way of how almost like the parable reads you. Mm, love it. Mm. Well, I, I we we could keep going. And uh, thank God we have a Patreon because I know we got some bonus stuff that we're going to get to. Oh yeah, we're, we're going to tie some stuff together. But I'm going to I'm going to wait to let like, Keith t- t- tell all our you uh, lovely listeners about our Patreon. But um, in the meantime, I'm going to tell everyone that we have a website www.heretichappyhour.com. On that website, we have a bookstore from many, many, many of our lovely heretics of the week. They have books. You should read them. They're about 15% off on average. If you go to our bookstore, you're going to save money. You're going to support the show. And uh, it's a it's a win-win situation, folks. So it's heretichappyhour.com. Hit up that store. We also got merch. Uh, check out every link that you can click on at that site. While you're resting your head on your new pillow that you yes, get sir. from the store, you can peruse over to the Facebook group that will change your life <laughs> called Heresy After Hours where we engage every little subatomic particle of bizarre Christian culture and have fun with it. Uh, We're also having really great conversations there. All four of us are active in the group. So come on over to Heresy After Hours. We got over 2,000 people having really, really great conversations. So a really easy, free way to access the community. I think it's 2,300 now. Yeah. 2,300 members. And counting. And counting. 2,300 happy, happy customers. And you know what? If you cannot get enough of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and come on, who can? You need to jump over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and become one of our faithful Patreon supporters. Uh, And those of you who already support us on Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you so much. And um, Patreon is where, uh, if you support us, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Patreon is very if you support us. Um, and we have many levels. We have a $2 level um, where you get uh, bonus content, bonus interviews and footage and things like that uh, just for you. Um, we also at the $10 level, you get PDFs of uh, our different books that we have uh, authored. And $25 level, you get quarterly Zoom calls and things like that, extra bonus, good stuff. And there's even a $100 level for those of you crazy, insane, beautiful people uh, who want to support us at that level. And uh, heck, you could even be Heretic of the Week. Why not? But go to patreon.com, support us. And again, those of you who do support us, we are so grateful, so thankful. You're also welcome to join our private, very, very private uh, Facebook group that is only for those who support us financially every month on Patreon. And uh, that's the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. But you will only be admitted if you support us on Patreon. So head over there and support your favorite podcast. That's right. And we love you to listen, but we love even more when you engage. So we want you to give us a five-star review on iTunes. And let me tell you what can happen. Because first of all, through the Patreon, we're reversing the Catholic position and we're reinstating the indulgences. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. No, just kidding. Uh, but uh, but I'll tell you what. If 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 you be, if you give us a five star rating on iTunes, Keith Giles will give you the same juicy kiss that he gave to our patrons. 
Oh, that's right. Just fly over to El Paso, Texas, and knock on my door. And come on, there you come go. On. Are you back? Fuck her up and give it one more time, Keith. Yeah, one more time. Oh, juicy. <laughs> <laughs>